The article you're about to hear is a free preview from Slate Voice, the spoken edition of Slate. If you'd like to listen to a daily selection of the magazine's best stories, handpicked by our editors, join Slate Plus. Find out more at slate.com slash voice. Brett Stevens' Mob Mentality by Osita Wanevu People's lives are being shattered and destroyed by mere allegation. Some are true and some are false. Some are old and some are new. There is no recovery for someone falsely accused. Life and career are gone. Is there no such thing any longer as due process? This was President Trump's tweeted response after White House staffers David Sorensen and Rob Porter resigned over domestic abuse allegations last week. Of course, if the 19 women who have accused Trump of sexual misconduct are lying, as their president and the White House have repeatedly claimed, his election to the presidency would stand as a rather powerful counterexample that the falsely accused are getting a raw deal today. This is the kind of flight from coherence we've come to expect from the president and his supporters. Counterexamples, counterarguments, history and common sense don't hold a candle to the bold repeated assertions and hyperbole of the reactionary mindset, widely taken now to be a kind of virus in the body politic. Exclusively taking in, we tell ourselves, the less educated, the racist, the stupid, the misguided, and the disingenuous. In short, the kind of people, it was said late last year, who lent their unwavering support to Alabama Republican Senate candidate Roy Moore, after he was accused by multiple women of sexual misconduct against them when they were teens. One accused Moore of fondling her at the age of 14. The defences and outright denials of this conduct by a remarkable number of Republican voters and pundits were taken as further evidence of how unhinged a large swathe of the non-establishment right had become. With characteristic wit, the New York Times' conservative columnist Brett Stevens tweeted in early December that the GOP could now be called the GOPP, Grand Old Pedophile Party. In a conversation column with Gail Collins, Stevens decried the moral bankruptcy of Moore's supporters. Roy Moore is what Republicans get and what they deserve when they abandon mainstream Republicanism for populism and when they renounce the idea that good moral character is a requirement of high political office, he wrote. Did you notice the Reverend Franklin Graham defending Moore by saying his accusers are guilty of doing much worse? For him, it's all about putting a Christianist in the Senate, even if that Christianist molests teenagers. On December 28, Stevens tweeted to Breitbart's Joel Pollock that he and the publication owed apologies to the victims of Roy Moore's predations for their efforts to discredit them. Absent from this material is any doubt on Stevens' part that Moore was in fact guilty of all that he had been accused of, despite the lack of anything like formal due process to adjudicate the claims against him. To Stevens, and every reasonable person in America, Moore was an obvious and unrepented pedophile. Case closed. Stevens ignored a number of relevant facts about the Yale-New Haven investigation. On Friday, three months to the day after the first allegation against Roy Moore appeared in the Washington Post, Brett Stevens published a piece titled The Smearing of Woody Allen. 
It was framed as a response to Alan's adopted daughter, Dylan Farrow, asking in the pages of the Los Angeles Times in December why the hashtag MeToo movement had thus far spared Alan, who she is accused of assaulting her at the age of seven. An in-depth, contemporaneous and independent investigation into the allegations conducted over several months by the Yale New Haven Hospital in 1992 and 1993 noted that there were important inconsistencies in Dylan's statements and that her descriptions of the details surrounding the alleged events were unusual and were inconsistent. Stevens wrote, citing the hospital's expert opinion that Dylan was not sexually abused by Mr. Allen. Stevens went on to write that young children are imaginative and suggestible and innocently prone to making things up, and noted also that nobody has come forward in 25 years with a fresh accusation of assault against him. The latter observation immediately preceded one of the most remarkable paragraphs the New York Times has published in recent memory. If Alan is in fact a pedophile, he appears to have acted on his evil fantasies exactly once, Stevens wrote. Compare that to Larry Nasser's 265 identified victims. Now, on its face, this seems like simple and impressively brazen whataboutism. In the discussions on social media that followed the piece, some have suggested that Stevens was trying to say that there was more evidence in Nasser's case to indict him than there is in Alan's. In any case, certain facts advanced by Stevens's critics, including Pod Save America co-host John Lovett, seem relevant. As a correction appended to the bottom of Stevens's piece now notes, there were two other investigations of the allegations against Allen that Stevens failed to mention. An investigation by the New York State Department of Social Services and an investigation by the Connecticut State Police. The Department of Social Services concurred with Yale New Haven that there was insufficient evidence that Farrow had been abused. But Frank Mako, the Connecticut state prosecutor who commissioned the Yale New Haven inquiry, said in 1993 that he believed that there was, in fact, probable cause to prosecute Allen, although he had declined to do so out of concern about the impact a trial would have had on Farrow. Stevens ignored a number of other relevant facts about the Yale New Haven investigation. Its independence has been challenged over the years, including in a 1993 custody ruling, in which the judge questioned the conclusiveness of Yale New Haven's findings, stated that Allen had attacked Dylan's mother, Mia, for manipulating her against him without the support of any significant credible evidence and said that Alan's behaviour with Dylan, generally speaking, had been, quote, grossly inappropriate and that measures must be taken to protect her, end quote. There was no mention in Stevens's piece either of the fact that a babysitter had sworn in court that she had seen Alan with his face in Dylan's lap on the day of the alleged assault, a day that, as a tutor working at the Farrow house had testified, Dylan had not been wearing underpants under her dress. Stephen's piece also curiously neglects to consider Alan's body of work. As David Kleim, writing in Jewish Currents, and Ira Madison III, writing at the Daily Beast, have noted recently, relationships between middle-aged men and younger women feature heavily.
Most infamously, in the film Manhattan, a comedy writer, played by a 43-year-old Alan, dates a 17-year-old girl, played by Mariel Hemingway, who has claimed she shared her first kiss with Alan at 16, while filming a scene. Stevens additionally makes only a brief passing reference to Alan's affair with, in his words, Mia Farrow's adopted barely adult daughter Sun Yi Previn, who is now Alan's wife. These facts, while not constituting definitive proof of Alan's guilt, would have been important to reckon with seriously given that they've lent plausibility to Dylan's allegation in the minds of many. Stevens responded to them on social media with a revealing petulance. To argue simply that there is insufficient evidence against Woody Allen is one thing. To claim, as Stevens did after publication, that those who disagree are participating in an illegitimate and irresponsible verdict-first-trial-never Twitter mob is quite another. This characterization of the growing criticism of Allen could have applied just as easily to the public reactions to allegations against Roy Moore, Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, Matt Lauer, or Charlie Rose, none of whom was subjected to what we conventionally call due process or a trial before public judgments were rendered against them by people including Brett Stevens. It's not clear, given this, what Stevens means when he writes that Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey have been proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, or when he calls for the presumption of innocence on Allen's behalf in his column. These are terms of legal parlance invoked as though they can confer an easy formality on situations that haven't yet been settled in any court, except the court of public opinion. Conventionally, the latter term has meant that one suspected of wrongdoing should be innocent until they're actually sanctioned by legal authorities, whether they've been accused by one, ten, or a hundred people. Again, Stevens perhaps possessed of a more exquisite conscience than the rest of us, has been willing to surrender that presumption in other instances. The difficulty here, already recognised by a number of commenters who have praised or considered themselves a part of the hashtag MeToo movement, is that the public opprobrium he characterises as mob justice is in fact the only plausible recourse for a large swathe of cases of sexual misconduct cases in which, for instance, allegations are brought years after the fact, or when claims from the accuser and the accused are the evidence available for assessment. It's unlikely that Woody Allen will ever be tried for Farrow's accusation, and so former and current colleagues, sponsors of his films, and ordinary people who consume his art render their judgments on his character on the basis of the facts available to them including several that, again, Stevens could not be bothered to examine. If there are reasons why this process of public opinion formation should be considered more untoward and mob-like than the processes that routinely reduce the esteem of other public figures for any number of reasons, Stevens has done a poor job of articulating them. Moreover, the fact that there have been more accusers in other hashtag MeToo cases doesn't change the fact that the forces at work against Allen, namely journalism and social media, are the very same forces that again have felled others that Stevens has seen fit to condemn. If there's something inherently rotten about the process by which people have made up their minds about Allen, then there's something inherently rotten about the whole enterprise. Stevens, if he believes this, should say so and apologise perhaps for the smearing of Roy Moore? 
Alternatively, he ought to consider developing an evidentiary standard to ascertain the kinds of cases that activists should put stock in. Of course, this falls outside the purview of what the Times has chiefly hired him to do, which is perform martyrdom and reassure the powers that be at the Times of their own open-mindedness. A clunky but reasonably descriptive phrase for what Stevens does is reactionary contrarianism. This particular strain of contrarianism is a political project against cultural liberalism that, as the President's tweet in defense of Sorensen and Porter demonstrates, has a deep resonance with the other dark undercurrents of the current political moment. The paranoia of believing that there are everywhere radical bogeymen and agents of totalitarianism and the idea that there exists a vast, toxic and tremendously influential swamp populated by the far left, liberals in the press, college students, feminists and so on, are evidently shared not only by Roy Moore supporters and unrepentant Trumpists, but certain self-appointed voices of reason in the cultural right and centre. One of the most Trumpian moments of the new year was Katie Royce claiming on a national television program last week that people with her critical views of hashtag MeToo are being silenced. The Thor police were evidently asleep at the switch. If hashtag MeToo critics ever go to the trouble of holding rallies, complaints about the censorship of crowd sizes will inevitably follow. In New York Magazine on Friday, Andrew Sullivan deployed the phrase cultural Marxism to describe the hashtag MeToo movement and political correctness on campus. The alt-right does the same, although in Sullivan's defense, they're referencing an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory only about half the time. This isn't to say, of course, that the far right and columnists like Stevens are morally equivalent or advancing the exact same ideology. It seems possible, though, that Barry Weiss could have a second career hawking tinfoil headgear and dubious multivitamins on YouTube if she wanted it. On Bill Maher's show Friday, she was still advancing the hysterical fiction that a substantial portion of hashtag MeToo's activists believe that Aziz Ansari's alleged actions are ethically equivalent to the actions of Harvey Weinstein. Earlier this month, the comedian Amy Schumer was asked about Ansari and said of his alleged misconduct, it's not a crime, but it's not cool. This would have been a career-ending blunder if it were the case, as Weiss and others have routinely claimed, that anyone who doesn't condemn all imperfect men in the severest of terms is sent into cultural exile. Schumer, at last check, seems to be alive, well and prosperous. But the witch hunt against witch hunters continues, and critics of political correctness and hashtag MeToo, in a frenzy of wild accusations, will be casting extremists and invented opponents as representatives for the foreseeable future. The tragedy of the mob, Stevens tweeted on Saturday, is that those in them rarely think of themselves as part of a mob. How right he is.